Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast. This is your host Robert Silva. And tonight we this will be a three-part podcast. Part 1, I will be doing a recap of the historic first ever female fight headlining the mecca of boxing. Madison Square Garden, the the cathedral of boxing, Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano. Part two, I will give my number 42 of the last 45 years, Greatest Fighter, an article I I wrote several months ago, might might even have been a year ago on FightGameMedia.com. My number 42, Mike Tyson. I will be reading excerpts from that article I wrote about a year ago. Um, and uh, uh, giving you a historical retrospective of one of the most iconic names in boxing history, and that is, of course, Iron Mike Tyson. And part three will be the recap of Shakur Stevenson's virtuoso performance against Oscar Valdez. I was joined by Garrett Gonzalez, and this occurred uh, Saturday night, also the same night as the Taylor Serrano fight. April 30th. Now on to the recap of the Katie Taylor Amanda Serrano fight. First and foremost, the Dazone boxing uh, duo Chris Mannix and Todd Grisham. They're horrendous. They're horrible. They're two clowns. They're two goofballs. Chris Mannix, I don't know what the hell he was scoring in this fight. There were rounds where Amanda Serrano did absolutely nothing, and he gave Serrano those rounds. I don't understand it. Enough enough time wasted on those two idiots. Uh, kudos to Jessica McCaskill. She did a solid job announcing, very solid job announcing. And um, Chris Mannix doesn't know his ass from his elbow because he claimed that uh, Katie Teller's best uh, defense Best offense and defense would be to slug it out with Jessica, uh, with not Jessica, Amanda Serrano. Katie Taylor is a brilliant boxer. Her job is to move and make you miss and counter. She's not a slugger, all right? Her record is 21-0 with six knockouts. Amanda Serrano is the power puncher. Why would Katie Taylor slug it out with Serrano and give Serrano the advantage? It's... Serrano gets the advantage, not Taylor, you goddamn goof. All right, enough of Chris Xanax, a.k.a. Mannix. Back to the fight. This was no robbery, ladies and gentlemen. People hooping and hollering about, oh, Amanda Serrano got robbed. No, this was a clear-cut decision win by Katie Taylor. The first four rounds, she controlled the action by moving, landing her jab. By the way, Amanda Serrano jab throughout this entire fight was non-existent. She landed beautiful counter left hooks and right crosses, especially the left. The check left hook by uh, Taylor was very, very important and impressive throughout the first four rounds. Fifth round was all Serrano. She hurt Taylor. She batted Taylor, busted open her nose. And after the fifth round, it looked like it was going to be all Serrano. Serrano looked like she was about to stop Taylor. Serrano made a huge mistake. She became a headhunter in the sixth round instead of going to the body. 
Taylor was still affected from the previous round, and her movement, her legs looked very shaky. Her movement wasn't as fluid as the first four rounds because Serrano had hurt her real bad in the fifth. Sixth round, uh, Serrano goes head hunting. I gave her the, the, the slight edge, but Taylor was beginning to get her legs back, and she began to land counter shots, and she began to move again. Round seven, eight, and nine was all Katie Taylor as she moved brilliantly and she countered effectively while Serrano was just following around. Serrano was not landing any punches. Tenth round was a tremendous round. Definitely a contender for a round of the year. The fight's a contender for fight of the year. Taylor brought it to Serrano, which shocked me. And and that round could have gone either way. I gave the slight edge to Serrano because seconds left in the fight, she hurt Taylor, and Taylor's knee came dangerously close to, to hitting the canvas floor. Um, but it didn't. That being said, still have to give the round to uh, Amanda Serrano. And after 10 rounds, because I gave the first four rounds to Katie Taylor, I gave round five and six to uh, to uh, Serrano, and round 10 to Serrano. So I had it 97-93. Katie Taylor, the right person won the fight. And before people say, oh, how you can say that? First of all, I'm a black Puerto Rican, all right? My parents both came from Puerto Rico, right? My grandfather is my complexion on my father's side. My grandmother, I'm, I'm sorry, my grandfather on my, on my mother's side, my grandfather on my mother's side is my complexion. My grandmother on my father's side is uh, as dark as you can get, as, as black as you can get, all right? I'm a black Puerto Rican, right? Serrano uh, lost that fight, all right? Katie Taylor won the fight, no prejudice here. I'm not, not showing any favoritism to my fellow uh, countrywoman in Amanda Serrano. Uh, kudos to the Madison Square Garden crowd. Over 19,000 sold out. And this is how the media, so-called fans, and the, the Zone broadcast team dropped the ball talking about, oh, oh the wrong person wanted this robbery. The fans, which was probably split down the middle between Puerto Ricans and Irish, did not start fighting amongst each other. No, they gave both fighters a standing ovation, and they did not boo. They didn't throw things in the ring. I've been to fights at Madison Square Garden where things got out of hand. I was at the Riddick Bow Andrew Galata Foul Fest back in July of 1996 that turned into a ridiculous riot. I had to hold back my father from from joining in the riot, riot. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it was a race riot. It was black fans fighting Polish fans. And it got, it was disgusting. It got a hand out of hand. I shoved my father towards the concession stand, and I kept him there until the riot, which lasted about 15 minutes, uh, subsided. And then we walked out because... Uh, Anybody who knows anything about my father knows that he was a crazy bastard. All right. All that being said, kudos to Katie Taylor. I hope they have a rematch. And if it was, if if I was Katie Taylor, I'd have to fight in Ireland, and I have the fight 
in an 80,000 seat stadium out there. Um, I forgot the name of it. Uh, my my um, longtime Fight Game Media partner and friend, Duan, from, from Ireland could uh, uh, better advise me as to what the biggest stadium out there is. But I think he told me there's a stadium out there that holds 80,000. Yes, uh, Katie Taylor should put that fight, the rematch, and let, let's put it in that 80,000 uh, soccer stadium and make a ton of money. They should make a ton. Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano both deserve as much money as they can get. Um, uh, and I'm not going to address the clown Jake Paul's comments about the decision because he's not a fighter. He's a goddamn circus act. And as I've said several times on this uh, podcast, I don't recognize that clown. I don't recognize his fights, and I won't be covering that shit on here. All right. On to part two of the podcast. And we look at the career of Mike Tyson. As I wrote, yeah, this was a year ago. As I wrote on FightGameMedia.com, and you can see my entire series up to number 15. The last one that was published was number 15 of the last 45 years. Fighter, uh, Mike, uh, Michael Spinks. Ironic that I'm talking about Mike Tyson. When Mike Tyson's biggest win was against Michael Spinks. More on that in a few minutes um coming up soon my number my number 14 fighter of the last 45 years article that will be published on fightgamemedia.com and that will be on the greatest Nicaraguan fighter of all time the legendary Alexis Arguello now on to uh the article I wrote about Mike Tyson and as I wrote Mike Tyson is probably the biggest what if in boxing history what if Customano hadn't died what if Kevin Rooney would have never been let go as his trainer? What if Tyson had rejected Don King's advances that led to taking control of his career? One thing is for certain, change all three scenarios, and Tyson would have been would have easily been higher than the 42nd greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Boxing's heavyweight champion of the world used to be considered the premier athlete and title in sports. Slight delay there, and my, my computer froze for a second. So back to what I was saying. Boxing's heavyweight champion of the world used to be considered the premier athlete and title in sports. Men like Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, and Larry Holmes became almost mythical-like figures while carrying the mantle of heavyweight champion. Mike Tyson continued his tradition with his, with his mercurial... Merc, I'ma just... Merc, mercurial rise to the top of the division. The late 1980s saw Tyson, outside of the recently deceased Diego Maradona, as the biggest st sports star on the planet. On the eve of his 22nd birthday... Tyson was as invincible as any athlete who ever lived. The only thing that could de that could defeat Tyson was himself. Unfortunately, unfortunately, over a period of time, that's what happened. My father loved Tyson's hunger inside the ring. My father instilled in me since he began teaching me to read that the most lethal combination in boxing was incredible talent and hunger. Tyson possessed both, and my father was right. Tyson was basically living on the streets as a 13-year-old, beating and robbing people when he was sent to a youth detention group home 
a youth detention group home in upstate New York. While there, he caught the attention of longtime upstate New York trainer Customato. D'Amato would mow Tyson to a near-picture-perfect fighting beast as well as adopt him as his son. Because the elderly D'Amato was 77 years old when Tyson turned pro in 1985, Cuss's disciple, Kevin Rooney, had taken over the reins as Tyson's chief second. D'Amato died on November 4, 1985. My father felt at the time that this death would make Tyson even hungrier and more dangerous in the ring. It was also the first opening for the nefarious king to get involved. In less than 18 months as a professional, Tyson fought 27 times, winning all but two by knockout. Then he knocked out WBC champion Trevor Burbick in two rounds on November 22, 1986 to become the youngest champion in the storied history of the division at just 20 years old. Suffice to say that with this victory in his first world title fight, HBO and King were banking on Tyson winning the undisputed t title in a tournament they were promoting. I was away from home while attending college in New Orleans at the time. My father told me the night after Tyson obliterated Burbick on a long-distance phone call conversation that there was nobody at heavyweight today who stood a chance against Mike. His hunger and skill level was something that was unmatched. Tyson, Tyson defeated the WBA champion Bone Crusher Smith and IBF champion Tony Tucker on consecutive 12-round decisions to unify all three governing, sanction, governing sanctioning bodies. This, coupled with the ring champion Michael Spink's fifth-round destruction of Cooney in June of 19, 1987, will culminate in the signing of the biggest prize fight ever financially up to that point. Three months before that fight occurred, Tyson lost another close confidant to death, his co-manager Jimmy Jacobs. With Jacobs and D'Amato now both out of the way, King was able to worm his way into being the single guiding factor in Tyson's life. The Spinks fight was a complete mismatch. The night, of the, the night of the fight, I was on a summer break from school. My father and I watched it at a dingy nightclub in Greenwich Village. The tickets were only $15 a pop, so I can't complain that much. As we sat in a packed club anticipating the fight, my father, who was completely in inebriated, predicted the fight wouldn't go 90 seconds. He was wrong. It lasted 91 seconds. The reason Pop predicted he wouldn't go 90 seconds was because Spinks delayed his ring entrance, which infuriated Tyson to the point where he punched a hole in the dressing room wall and also that Spinks had braces on both knees. He was a sitting duck as evidence from the very beginning of the fight. Tyson came straight at Spinks and dropped him with a thudding right to the ribcage just over a minute into the fight. Spinks got up at the count of four. After referee Frank Cappuccino's mandatory eight count, Spinks immediately walked into a thunderous right cross that sent his head bouncing off the canvas. Spinks, in his attempt to get up, almost fell through the ropes as Cappuccino counted him out. Tyson was, was, Tyson was finally the universally recognized heavyweight champion of the world. It was also the beginning of the end for the 22-year-old champ. After the Spinks destruction, Tyson immediately fired Rooney and his manager, Bill Caton. He gave Don King complete control of his career and surrounded himself with yes-men. After knockouts of Carl Williams and Frank Bruno, Tyson went to, went to Japan to defend against James Buster Douglas in February of 1990. 
Other than a knockdown he scored against Buster in round eight, Tyson did absolutely nothing as Douglas boxed circles around him before putting him asleep in the 10th round. My father that night said that the hungrier Tyson, that my father that night had said the hunger Tyson had was completely gone. That Tyson hunger would only return from time to time. Tyson would win his next four fights before signing signing to fight the then undisputed heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield in November of 1991. Unfortunately, Mike suffered a rib injury while sparring and the fight was postponed. That previous summer, Tyson was charged with raping Desiree Washington. Washington was a beauty pageant contestant in Indiana as a judge. Tyson's trial began at the beginning of 1992 and he was sub. Subsequently found guilty. Tyson was 25. Tyson was 25 years old and would lose three years of his prime while incarcerated. He would be released from prison three years later. Tyson would begin his comeback with with the unknown Peter McNeely five months later, a laughable farce of a first round knockout. On March 16, 1996, Tyson destroyed WBC champion Frank Bruno to regain a portion of the heavyweight championship he once held. Instead of defending his title against the WBC number one contender Lennox Lewis, Tyson vacated the title and, and instead fought the WBA champion, a journeyman named Bruce Seldon. Seldon was a Don King manufactured champion. That fight was held the same night Tupac Shakur was shot and, and killed in Las Vegas. Tupac and Tyson had become very close. Seldon was knocked out in the first round by a phantom Tyson punch. Tyson's first defense would occur two months later on November 9, November 9th, 1996 against what my, my father and I thought was a shot Evander Holyfield. Holyfield had engaged in wars with George Foreman, Michael Mora, Ray Mercer, and a life and death trilogy with Bobby, with not Bobby Chess, but Riddick Bowe. In his fight prior to Tyson, Holyfield looked like a zombie against Bobby Chess. At 34 years old, he looked like a sacrificial lamb for King and Tyson to feast on. Instead, Holyfield began one of the greatest resurrections in boxing history. He battered Tyson from pillar to post before referee Mitch Halpern stopped the fight in the 11th round as Tyson was helpless in the corner. The rematch, held seven months later, was more the same before a completely frustrated Tyson bit bit chunks of both Holyfield's ears in the third round, causing him to be disqualified and suspended for 18 months. By the time Tyson stepped back in the ring at the age of 32 on January 16, 1999, against South African Francois Bota, he was a shell of his former self. Tyson was being completely outboxed until he landed a bone-crushing right cross that knocked the South African out. Five fights later, Tyson would finally meet Lennox Lewis for Lewis's undisputed heavyweight title on June 8, 2002, a little over four months after the infamous New York press conference where the two men got into a scuffle and Tyson bit one of Lennox's legs. Lennox totally outclassed a faded Tyson by controlling the distance with his jackhammer left jab and right cross. Finally, in round eight, Lennox put Mike out of his misery by knocking him out with one of his patented Patterson, Patterson, no, one of his uh, patented right-hand missiles. 
The career of Mike Tyson was, for all intents and purposes, over. Tyson fought three more times while getting knocked out in two of those fights against journeyman Danny Williams and Kenny McBride. Kevin McBride. Um, Tyson, after getting knocked out by McBride, would finish his career with a record of 50-6 and six with 44 knockouts. After years of substance abuse and the tragic death of a young daughter, Tyson has reinvented himself and is seemingly happier than he's ever been. While criminal that his career ended up falling short of his amazing talent, it is great to see Mike enjoying life and being looked at as a cultural icon now in his mid-50s. Next week, my number 41 greatest fighter of the last 45 years subject that we'll be talking about is one of the biggest names in boxing today, and hopefully we have that uh, uh, upcoming bout, hopefully in the next five, six months, between the subject of next week I'll be talking about, Terrence Bud Crawford and Errol Spence for the Undisputed Welterweight Championship of the World and the biggest fighter welterweight since 1999 when Oscar De La Hoya fought Felix Trinidad. On to part three. Um, part three of this podcast is a conversation Gary Gonzalez and I had minutes after Shakur Stevenson's incredulous performance against Oscar Valdez, a virtuoso performance. Um, in the future, if you guys want to hear my hour or two recap of a major fight, and this is occasionally, it won't happen all the time. Um, we have Dimitri Boval fighting Canelo Alvarez next Saturday night. Oh, just to remind me, I totally forgot my prediction for this upcoming fight, which there will be no Patreon recap. Before I get to my prediction, in order for you to not only hear my every once in a while recap of major fights like last week's Shakur Stevenson, Oscar Valdez fight, you have to subscribe to the Fight Game Media Patreon podcast. And you can go to fightgamemedia.com, and there's a link there that will take you to the Patreon. Not only do you hear uh, the sultry tones of my crazy ass, uh, with not only the occasional super fight recap after the fight is over, but I have a monthly special on the Patreon uh, podcast, on the Patreon Fight Game Media page, and that is my greatest upset in boxing history. Uh, so far, we've done three. I did the first two with Carlos Toro. Uh, you have the, speaking of welterweights, at the time he was the undisputed welterweight champion of the world, Donald Curry, shockingly losing his undisputed 147-pound title to Lloyd Hunnigan in October of 1986. And then, uh, Roberto Duran's first loss when he was the un when he was the undeniable lightweight champion of the world. He wasn't undisputed yet. The man who beat him that night in one of the biggest upsets of all time, Esteban de Jesus, they would later later fight and Duran would knock him out to become undisputed lightweight champion of the world. And the most recent greatest upsets in boxing history podcast I did was the one the night that Frankie Randall 
shocked the world by finally ending Julio Cesar Chavez's undefeated record after 90 fights. Also on the Fight Game Media Patreon podcast, you have exclusive coverage on AEW, WWE, Impact, New Japan, All Japan, GCW. If there's a mud show wrestling, uh, uh, if there's a mud show outlaw uh, wrestling card in Little Rock, Arkansas, or Boise, Idaho, somebody from FightGameMedia.com will be will, will be there. We'll report on it, and we'll have a podcast on it. And also, great coverage of both UFC, Bellator, Bloodsport, all all the mixed martial arts uh, uh, promotions out there. And, of course, my crazy ass. Now, on to Gary Gonzalez and I recap of Shakur Stevenson's virtuoso performance against Oscar Valdez. Oh, I totally forgot my prediction on the upcoming fight this Saturday night, May 7th, pay-per-view, Saul Canelo Alvarez going up against the WBA light heavyweight champion of the world, Dimitri Bavall. I totally forgot about giving you guys my prediction. I see, in a shocker, Bavall shocking the world by winning a very close 12-round decision. Why am I picking Bavall to win when damn near all the experts have predicted that Bavall would win? I could be wrong, but Bavall doesn't know how to lose. Bavall has one of the best jabs in boxing, and he's a tremendous boxer, and he has a very high ring IQ. And if you look in the history of boxing, guys that know how to win and don't know how to lose, who dominate their fight in and out over and over again, they find ways to win. Now, on the other hand, the big moment might be too much for Baval, and he will uh, resort to tactics, tactics he normally doesn't use in the ring. He's not going to employ. I I don't see him employing slugging tactics against Canelo Alvarez. I see him moving behind that beautiful left jab of his, throwing that beautiful right counter, but it will not be easy. Canelo's one of the three best body punches in the sport today. Today, there are three fighters whose body punching are on a Hall of Fame top-tier level, and that's Canelo, Naomi Inouye, and Errol Spence. They killed the body. They disrupt things with their body. And Canelo will definitely go to Baval's body. And he will try and break down the light heavyweight champion. I think the biggest reason why Baval will win is that beautiful jab of his. And if you notice, that's the one thing that's given Canelo the biggest problem in his toughest fights. Floyd Mayweather, Austin Trout. The first fight with Triple G. And of course, Erislandi Lara. Uh, Their jabs gave Canelo a lot of problems. Um, Canelo, no doubt, will adjust and begin to counter that jab late in the fight. And uh, will give Baval problems. But I see Baval winning a very close but solid decision in what will go down 
as the upset of the year. And that's me just predicting. I mean, um, that's what I see. We will see. Um, wish me a happy birthday. Um, that night, May 7th, will be my 54th birthday. So I will be celebrating that birthday with my nephew watching the fight. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the ladies out there that listen to the to the podcast. To all the men's mothers, girlfriends, wives, sisters, aunts, etc. Happy Mother's Day to all those beautiful women in you fellas' family. Now on to the conversation between Gary Gonzalez and I on Shakur Stevenson's. Virtuoso performance against Oscar Valdez. All right, this is the bonus show for Pound for Pound. Normally you hear the dulcet tones of, of Robert Silva, and he is here, <laughs> but uh, I'm Double G, and I'm helping him out with uh, with this bonus show here. He usually has uh, his partner in crime, Carlos Toro. As we have mentioned in the past, Carlos has taken a break. Mm-hmm. He is... Uh, you know, doing his thing, and, and we, we support him. So I'm helping Robert out tonight, and uh, Robert wanted to cover the Shakur Stevenson and Oscar Valdez fight, which was on ESPN+. And we're going to get to that in a second. I just want to mention one thing, which is if you've been listening to our Fight Game Media Network, our Fight Game Media Network+, Plus, which is what this show is on, the Patreon, we have been giving away these uh, little digital... Uh, collectibles called Poops, and we have a Poop for this show, this bonus show, pound for pound bonus show. Uh, Stevenson and Valdez sent an email to Fight Game Media Poop, P O A P, at gmail.com, and in the subject line, put in P4P and then Poop. So two words in the subject line P4P and Poop, and uh, Kesaku will send you the link so that you can claim your po-op for this show. All right. So Robert, many, so many P's. You. P, P, pow for pow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you've been telling me about Shakur Stevenson for a while now. You have been very high on him pretty much since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, did did you, were you, the, were you high on him coming out of the Olympics? 1,000%. Um, I saw a lot in Shakur Stevenson that I that I saw in Pernell Whitaker, which was uh, God bless my father. He pointed it out to me during the '84 Olympics. He would he would smack me in the back of the head while we were watching the Olympics and say, "Look at Pernell. Look at the way he's commanding the ring. Look at the way he's focused on his fighter. He watches everything he can. He's going to be a superstar." My father and I saw the same thing in Floyd Mayweather at the '96 Olympics, and yes, I saw that with. Shakur at the 2016 Olympics. And then as his professional career progressed, I saw it more and more. He reminds me of a hybrid of Floyd Mayweather and and Pernell Whitaker. Those are, in my lifetime, the three best defensive fighters I've ever seen in my lifetime. That's high praise for a man who's only had 18 fights, but he's that great defensively. You cannot hit him. He can stay right in front of you like a Floyd, like a Sweepy, and you can't hit him. Um, I knew this was going to be a cakewalk for him. I got to give Oscar Valdez credit. He fought as well as he could, but 
he was swinging and missing like a, a prime Dave Kingman, former Giant, former Met. <laughs> <laughs> Giants have a new Dave Kingman. Uh, his name is Joey Bart. He's their starting catcher. That dude. Oh, yeah. Woo, man. He swings and misses man. so much. But then when he does connect one, the ball's just going, just he, traveling he so ain't far no, so He fast. ain't no Buster Posey. <laughs> no, not yet. Assuredly, not yet. He needs to work on lessening the strikeouts because a catcher, this is a little bit off topic, a catcher should be striking out all those times, especially – San Francisco Giants have had... He should know the strike zone better <laughs> than anybody, anybody else. <laughs> and then Oscar Valdez did not know the strike zone in this fight. I mean, first of all... No. First few rounds, Garrett, he... What was he doing? He wasn't forcing the action. You cannot stay in the middle of the ring with Shakur Stevenson and let him pour that right jab out there. And he was getting hit to the body more than he was hitting Shakur. Shakur was throwing that... Hook to the body that Pernell Whitaker loved to do, that uh, Floyd every once in a while did. Floyd mo- mostly jabbed to the body, but Shakur was landing that left uppercut, left hook to the body at will. Whenever Oscar was forcing forced himself inside, Shakur would make him pay with nice counter uppercuts and hooks to the body. I was thoroughly impressed with his body work. You can tell, Garrett, that he's looked at a lot of film of Pernell Whitaker, and I think he's patterned his style defensively, offensively, more than Pernell, more like Pernell, less so than Floyd. Defensively, though, you can't hit him. You can't hit him. This was a mismatch from day one. I told you a long time ago. This guy, Oscar, first of all, Oscar defensively is limited. Shakur hit him whenever he wanted to. Whenever he wanted to, he hit him. Valdez had one round where he was able to sort of get some stuff done. They, I think they'd mentioned that mm-hmm. it was the most uh, tied for the most shots that Stevenson actually had actually taken in a round right. in his career, which was 15. Mm-hmm. And it looked like, okay, well, maybe he had something going. Maybe he had figured something out. But the very next round, it went back to how it was for the first two rounds, and it pretty much stayed that way. I think Andre Ward gave him, it's like the ninth or the tenth he gave him. But other than that, everything else was uh, Stevenson. I gave uh, Valdez three rounds. I gave Valdez the, the last round because Stevenson, smartly, wasn't trying to force anything because he didn't want to get caught by anything stupid. Um, I gave the tenth round, like Andre Ward did, to Valdez and I gave him well what what round the I gave him the the sixth round and it was the seventh round right no wait a minute I gave him the fifth round and it was the sixth no I gave him the the seventh round because in the sixth round Shakur knocked him down with a beautiful combination counter combination yeah. as Valdez was swinging like Dave Kingman in his prime and hitting nothing but air <laughs> that was beautiful that was beautiful I was thoroughly impressed with so Shakur. Go ahead. So Andre's Andre was continually saying, "Okay, you're staying on the outside because he's you're you're trying to play a little bit of defense." And and Andre was saying, "And it's not working. So mm-hmm. why don't you try and step in a little bit more than you're doing? You're gonna get hit anyway." And when he was successful, the couple times he was successful, it seemed that that's what he was doing. 
but he did not that was not the tact the tact was to he was kind of leaning over his front foot he had both hands in a uh, uh, right right beside his head and I, I don't really i didn't really understand the strategy there no. like was he trying to bait something was he trying to bait Shakur into throwing his power hand like i i wasn't i, I didn't get the strategy I didn't, I didn't get the, I didn't get the strategy either and I think what kept him from doing that more often was Shakur was punishing him to the body every time Valdez got inside Shakur would throw a hook on uppercut to the body and you saw Valdez grimace several times there was a couple of times he looked to the referee for help and the referee's like no it's borderline by the way I do have to uh I have to take issue with Kenny Bayless Kenny Bayless has had a sensational career as a referee. But Garrett, just like a boxer is past his prime and washed up, Kenny Bayless is a washed up referee. I hate to say it because I love I love the work he's done. But he let Shakur get away with that pawing, which Shakur didn't have to do. I hate when boxers, poor Lennox, Lennox Lewis used to do this a lot, where he would just stick his, his, his lead hand out and instead of jabbing, just use it as a measuring stick, which is illegal. Mm-hmm. It's illegal, and Shakur was allowed to get away with that all night long. Um, Kenny, he, Kenny, he at one point he threatened to take a point, but that and he it, kept right? doing it. <laughs> yeah, that was the tenth yeah. night for tenth round. But he uh, Shakur just went back to doing it. It was like Shakur was like, well, Shakur's probably like, look, I got 10, 15 points he could take away, and I'm still going to win this fight, so I'm gonna keep doing it. It's too late. <laughs> but but um, I, Oscar, I think. Um, the body shots were affecting him. He wasn't as aggressive. I think he was shocked at how hard those body shots were, and he was getting cut, caught flush whenever Shakur would throw combinations. Shakur threw some beautiful combinations. So at the end of the fight, um, Stevenson, uh, you know, he's getting questions about what he's going to do, and and then he gets on his knee and uh, proposes to his significant that. other which was really awesome but it also made this like weird moment because the interviewer was like oh and now back to you know whatever his question was i'm like this guy just just congratulate him first and then you know ask him your question i thought that was kind of funny but i i, I uh, loved it i, I loved what, that because so explain the mm-hmm. go ahead explain the the lineage of the 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 unification and sort of what else is next? Because he mentioned that he wanted all of the belts he does. Uh, the, at that the, weight. And those, then... are, those other guys are not a pimple on his ass. Uh, Rene Al- Alvarado, those guys, they, they'll be more of the same. He, he, matter of fact, they wouldn't win a single round because Valdez is better than those guys. If I was Shakur, forget those belts. He's got the main belt, the ring belt, which is the only – title I recognize. I don't recognize the ABC, CBS, WBO titles. I recognize who the Ring Magazine recognizes because they always recognize Garrett, the man who beat the man who beat the man. So Shakur is the man at 130 because he won the Ring title because it was the number one and number two junior lightweights in the world fighting each other. Think it's time. You see how big Shakur is in the in, in the in the in the chest and in the in the, in the, the traps? He's still growing. He needs to get out of 130, move up to 135, where all the stars are. And Devin Haney signed a contract with Top Rank. Devin Haney, in my opinion, is going to beat Cambosos. 
And um, they have a rematch clause. He's going to beat Cambosos twice. And then either the third is he, he signed a four fight deal with, with, with top rank. One of those fights eventually has to be against uh, Shakur Stevenson. I see Stevenson and Haney fighting sometime within the next two years because either Haney's going to fight Shakur after the two fights with Cambosos or with Lomachenko, one or the other. And depending on the Ukraine Russia situation, we might have we might not see Lomachenko ring anytime soon. Um, so, it, yeah, this fight was very. It, it was a little anticlimactic. Like, like if you, I think the a lot of the people who are watching were probably hoping. I would say within the first six or seven rounds, they're probably hoping. Oh, you know, Valdez has a, a puncher's a, a knockout shot, but once it was about the sixth or the seventh, and you mm-hmm. saw what was going on. Eight through twelve, it was just you're just like you don't even need to watch the end of this thing because he mm-hmm. wasn't touching him, and so it was a little bit of a, a one of those performances where because so the the question at the end of the show was, you know, is this a star making performance? And Shakur Stevenson has the personality; mm-hmm. he fights uh, in a very entertaining way, but he almost fights too well to where it's not competitive. And and you know we sort of talked about. Sweet Pea, we talked about Floyd. Some of Floyd's big fights mm-hmm. were not as entertaining as people wanted them to be after they paid for them. Now, this is ESPN Plus fight, so we don't have to worry about that. But is there, you know, to sort of take that next level, he's almost too slick and almost too good, too defensive to make some of these fights entertaining. He doesn't get hit at all. Mm-hmm. Some of that, like, sort of superstardom, I wonder if it's going to be on hold until he gets into one of those bigger fights. He, he It'll probably be on hold until he fights, uh, hopefully, a Lomachenko. Uh, fingers crossed if they find a way to fight Tank Davis with the PBC and Bob Aaron feud. I don't see that happening. Devin Haney and Devin Haney has become more of an entertaining fighter the last few fights, and he would have to try and force the fight with Shakur. Th- those are the type of fights he needs t- to become that superstar fighter that you mentioned because you made a great comparison with Floyd and Purnell and Roy Jones. They made it look so yeah. easy. They didn't lose rounds. And the fights that uh, the fights that uh, the the fight that uh, Roy lost early in his career to Montel Griffin. He was robbed when Montel faked that he was comatose from a shot while he was down, and they disqualified Roy. And Purnell was horrendously robbed against both Jose Luis Ramirez and Julio Cesar Chavez, two of the worst, two of the top five worst decisions I've seen in the history of boxing. Uh, With Shakur, it's going to have to be somebody that's more of a threat. And the the biggest fight to make at 135 would be Tank versus Shakur. I've been saying that for years. I don't know how it could be made because Al Heyman and Bob Arum hate each other with a passion. I wish Al Heyman and Bob Arum would set their difference aside because Shakur will 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 well, while I believe Shakur is the better boxer, the better defensive fighter. Tank is just as quick as as uh, Shakur and. If he's behind, he's going to try and land some home run shots, and he has one-punch knockout power. If he catches Shakur correctly, it could be lights out. That'll be a very intense fight, even if Shakur is up eight rounds to one going into the 10th round. You, you'll, still have that, you'll still have that intensity with Tank landing, possibly landing at one shot. Um, that, to me, that's the, that's the biggest fight to make at 135.
All right, so uh, on your show upcoming this week, uh, you're going to do uh, another profile of of your greatest 45 fighters of the last 45 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a there there's a fight next weekend, which is a, a big fight. W- what do you think about that one? Dimitri Bavall is the best fighter Canelo Alvarez has fought since Triple G. Dimitri Bavall doesn't know how to lose. Dimitri Bavall doesn't lose rounds. This is not the cakewalk a, a lot of casual fans and so-called esper, es, experts think it is for Canelo. Canelo's going to be in a tough fight. Dimitri Bavall does everything off his left jab. Um, he's got great ring generalship. This is to me. This is a fifty-fifty fight. This is a tough fight. If if Canelo if Canelo blows Bavall away, not only will I be shocked, I will be highly impressed because Bavall is a very good and excellent fighter, and he's a natural light heavyweight. Canelo's not. Bavall throws a beautiful jab. Bavall throws combinations. He's a very good boxer. Um, yeah, uh, it's. I you, let's save save your prediction for save your prediction for 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 your your next show. No, I want to just say one thing before you continue, Garrett. I want to uh, congratulate a personal friend of ours, uh, Duan, from Ireland, who several years ago told both Garrett and I. What was it? What year was it, Garrett? Two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, where he said he told us that Katie Taylor was going to be a major star. He was go- she was going to be yep. a major breakout star, and tonight, I haven't seen the fight on on the free feed coming up. I promise to watch it and give a score, but kudos to Duan. He called it a long time ago. He said Katie was going to be one of the all-time great female fighters, and now she's in the conversation, and I haven't seen the fight, but you you beat Amanda, Amanda Serrano, who is a beautiful boxer. You're in the conversation amongst the all-time great female boxers. So kudos to our boy Duan. Uh, they drew a very strong number at Madison Square Garden. And, and we're not talking about the little no, they uh, sold the out little the Hulu theater portion. This was, the, this was the real garden. It was an official sell, sellout. That was pretty... uh, they, they hold 19,000 for boxing. They, they had 19,000 people in the arena tonight. That is crazy. Awesome. That is, I, I don't know. I don't know the last time the garden was sold out. The big garden was sold out for a fight. It's been a while. Yeah, no. I'd have it was to. Awesome I'd have for to. Them and yeah, I'd have to look it up because I don't know when was the last time the garden sold out. I know I went to a couple of sell, sellouts. I was there when Duran beat Davey Moore with my father. I was there when Bernard Hopkins beat Felix Trinidad. Those were legit sellouts. Um, the Galata bow fight, I do not believe, was a sellout. I was there that night with my father. The, the riot, the 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 riot at the garden. I think it was sixteen, seventeen thousand people in attendance that night. It is very rare to sell out Master Square Garden, and those two ladies did. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, all right, we'll we'll uh, we'll end it here. Um, and uh, Robert will be back on Tuesday. Uh, for the free feed, and uh, he'll have his show breaking down stuff. He'll give his Canelo Bivol prediction, and uh, yeah. So Robert, have a good rest of your weekend, and we'll see you on Tuesday.